Hello, everybody. My name is Ojisto Cuyo, and I'm coming at you from Auntie's Dandelion Podcast. And as Gasto Saraguate, Paulette Moore, asked me to do this special edition of their podcast, I'm going to be hosting it today. My name is Ojisto Cuyo, and she calls me an emergent auntie, and I'm guessing that means auntie in training. And so <laughs> I am very much in training. I got ready for today. I got my big anti earrings on just for all you guys listening. And I'm ready to go into full anti mode here. <laughs> so we got a really special program today. We have my former teacher, Dejo.Gardado, Jeremy Green, who's joining us today. And I'm super excited. I've been wanting to discuss education with him for so long. <laughs> and so we finally get to have this little discussion for you guys. And I'm so lucky that you guys get to be able to hear this conversation. But before we get into it, I just wanted to thank the Indigenous Screen Office for funding this podcast and this episode today. So Nyamagoa. And now we'll get into our guest. So we have Dejo.Gardado, Jeremy Green here. And I am just doing your introduction based on how I know you. Please correct me for anything. He's a former teacher of mine. He taught it, me personally and my group when I was in my third year at Ogawanaganjokwa. He is a speaker of Ungohoineha, of Ganyagahaga. He is a second language learner, but he's a highly proficient speaker. And he's raised his children six six children in the language as first language speakers. And he's also a speaker at our longhouse, the Ganyagahaga, Ganosesne, the Mohawk longhouse here on Six Nations. And on top of all that, he is a very accomplished academic. He has gotten his PhD in Hawaii and with his thesis that we're going to get into today on the oral literacy approach. He's also done some really great work with Polytech on, on a study they did, Pathway to Becoming a Speaker of Lodunashoni Language. He's gotten his master's as well. That was on language as well, about the language history of Six Nations here. And now he's going into a new position as a professor at York University. And in a couple of weeks, he's getting married to the love of his life, Leanna. And so we're, you are winning at life. So is there anything you want to add to this beautiful, all your accomplishments you've made? No. <laughs> <laughs> sums it up before we get into this there is one extra thing that i wanted to <laughs> warn our listeners about my family i come from my family on my dad's side we're elliot's and we have a curse and a blessing in our family and it's the laugh the very loud obnoxious laughers <laughs> and so i have a very loud laugh so i'm going to try and keep it under control <laughs> for the pleasure of our listeners if it comes out and it's contagious so let you, i'm just letting you guys know out there listening so we're coming at you from the yurt, my kindergarten yurt, where I teach all the little ones every day. This is my seventh year teaching at Goa, the Everlasting Tree School, teaching the early years. And I'm actually teaching in the yurt, which was the first building of Goa, and you're a founder. And so you taught in this yurt as well. So how does it feel to be back in this space? The smell is familiar. <laughs> And the feel of the yurts is familiar, and it's great to be back here. Yeah. Oh, mm -hmm. awesome. It's so good to have you back. I wanted to get a little bit into your background because I went to reread your thesis last night, and the, the last couple of nights I've been tinkering through it. 
I've read it before, but in prep for this, I wanted to reread it. And it was so incredible when I read it the first time. I was a new teacher. It was, I think it was when it just came out because you were getting your PhD thesis while you were teaching our class in mm -hmm. third year. And so to be able to read it, it was really incredible read. And you went into detail about your language learning journey, which I found really helpful for me being a second language learner as well to see the path you have taken. So for anybody out there listening, can you give a little background on your language journey and how you found yourself as a language revitalization activist and supporter and all things Ngohoineha? Okay. Nyare, Tonua Igalam de Gadasawa, Digwanu Hordados, Eases of Aguega, Sewadam Tadache, Chavada Hatje, got no Westerners, does I want Derundo, Ayawa Scona, the one of Tonios, and the only Scona. So to start off, I just want to acknowledge the listeners and I hope that you are all feeling good. And also everyone is in good health and in good mind throughout your families. To start talking about my language learning journey, I'm from the community of Gontege, better known as the Tyndanega Mohawk territory. I remember the last person passing away in that community who was a fluent native speaker of Ganyangeha. And that was in my lifetime. And it would have happened in many of our listeners' lifetime. It would have been 2004. Mm. How old are you then? 1977. Mathing. He's mathing. <laughs> we don't want to take you too long. Okay. I was about 27 years old, oh, okay. I believe. And prior to that, when I, was a, when I was a boy, I went to the school on the reserve, the Quinney mm -hmm. Mohawk. Indian Day School. It was called Indian Day School. At it that was time. called in the in the phone book. It was called the Quinney Mohawk Indian Day School. That's a little bit, yeah, <laughs> a little yes. bit rough. <laughs> a little bit rough. Uh, in that time, I didn't quite understand what that meant. All I knew was that is what the phone book said. And, and going there, we were we were able to be exposed to the language for forty minutes a day. Uh, once a day, we learned colors, numbers, animals from a very wonderful woman, Audrey Cyril. And we called her Mrs. Ciro, and I thank her greatly for her efforts. And in that time, it was a huge accomplishment to have an Indigenous language program of any sort in any school. And in, in that time, there were no adult language immersion programs. There were no university programs. It was in the 1980s, it was starting to be community-based language courses. And so I'm taking Ganyangeha in the elementary school daily. And my mother says to me one night, she said, Hey, uh, I'm going to the school tonight. Do you have hockey? And I said, no. And she said, okay, do you want to come with me? I said, well, what are you going to the school for? She said, uh, David Miracle is teaching a class, a Mohawk class. And I want to learn to speak more Mohawk. And I said, okay. So I'll go with you. And I remember going to the school and it was in the library and they had these really horrible couches there and they had the hardest cushions imaginable. They should have just <laughs> been made out of wood. But anyways, I remember sitting on the couch and I was listening to them and in Ganadawakon, Gonha is his name, David Miracle, who just recently passed away, his passion for the language was evident and his will for those learners to learn anything in that time was evident. And what I did not know at the time was that he had driven there from London, Ontario, which is at least a three-hour drive one way to teach that course. And what became evident over time was the amount of commitment that's required 
on the part of a person who wants to learn to speak Ganyangeha and teach Ganyangeha. And in terms of my own language learning, there was no longhouse in Tainanega, and there were no longhouse ceremonies at that time being conducted in Tainanega. And my dad and some of his friends and their generation, they had been involved in the Red Power Movement in the 1960s and 70s, and they had attended longhouse ceremonies in our neighbor cousin communities of Akwazasne and Ganyange. Oh, yeah. Ganyange was started by this point. Yeah. It, yes, and yeah. in fact, my dad, his, my uncles, and some of their friends had been at Ganyange at Eagle Bay and Moss Lake. Oh, yeah. And when they were there, they were given Ngwahoe names. Yeah. And they heard people speaking about Gainarit yeah. Goa, the great law of peace. They heard them speaking about why our ceremonies are important, why our language is important, mm -hmm. why continuing and expanding our, our land-based rights are important. Yeah, I did and, just, we just went there for the first time ever. I took my daughter and my partner and I went and taught them storytelling for a couple of days and we stayed there. And that was a very powerful experience to be able to experience what they still have to this day, that community and how much they are. You hear Ganyageha everywhere. And it was an eye-opening experience for my daughter who has been attending immersion her whole life and since she was three, turning four. And I've been trying to raise her with the language, but she sees it in these pockets and to see other children speaking it was, I think, a eye-opening experience. And she was trying to use it with other people there. So it was beautiful what they've created and that it's a part of your history, too, for your family. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. So we would travel there. And I think the first time I was there, I think I was 12 years old. And I remember walking into a longhouse. It was the first time I was ever in a longhouse building and sitting on the bench. And across the other side of the longhouse, this elderly man stands up and he starts talking. And he's speaking in a language that, that I don't comprehend. And I recognize it as Kanyangeha. And quickly I realize I have no idea what he's saying. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there listening and there's these two little boys sitting beside me. And these two little boys are kind of horsing around and there's a man sitting beside them. And he says, hey, Zeneri Hokdong. Tadijadora. So they straighten around. And then I listened to these little boys some more, and they're speaking Ganyangeha. Oh. And I thought that was very inspiring for me. I had never saw that before. I'd never heard anyone speak like that before. In those moments, they plant seeds in people. They do. And the longhouse ceremony, was it was fun. I had a great time. And on the way home, I thought, I wonder what they're saying. So a couple of years later, Guardi Wahoe, Dorothy Lazor, moves to Gondege, and she becomes my high school Ganyangeha teacher. She's still there, isn't she? Or is she? No, no, she's back no, in Akwazasne. And, and she's talked about the Ohona Galiwadekwan. She had a long form and it was all Ganyangeha and underneath was translated word for word in English. And she handed it to me and I started reading it. And I was like, hey, this is what that guy is saying at the longhouse. And so I read it and it started talking about, we now turn our words and we turn our minds to the places where they are running about on the earth, to where he placed them. And he instructed them that they would give themselves up for us to have their meat and one would be the leader the deer and i thought hey we hunt and we hunt deer this makes sense to me and then it talked about food plants and i thought hey my dada my grandmother has a garden and my mom has a garden and i help them in the garden i like eating string beans and so this this absolutely makes sense to me and it just it helped me feel good about myself as a human being which is very important for an adolescent 13 years old and so from there, I said, I said to myself, I'm going to be able to say that speech. I'm going to be able to give thanks in that language, and I will become a speaker of that language. 
And over the years, I was spent five years in high school in a second language program with Guardi Wahawe. I dropped out of two universities at one time. <laughs> Same sorry. here. Sorry, guys. <laughs> so, sorry, mom. I dropped but you out completed of, them. I, I went back <laughs> and I actually dropped out of two universities at one time and moved in to Guardi Wahawe's house where I rented a room in order to learn to speak Ganyang Gehan. I was 18 years old at the time. Wow. I left my home community in 2001 and moved to Six Nations to take the Ngwawana Gunjokwa Adult Language Immersion Program. At the time, it was a nine-month program. And a lot different today, guys. <laughs> yes. And having graduated that program, I was already an Ontario-trained teacher. And I received a phone call from Deha Hande, Frank Miller, two weeks before the start of school, asking me if I wanted to teach grade four, five, six. This is still a common practice, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Some things don't change in a 50-50 program. So half day English, half day Ganyot Geha. And I, I sort of hemmed and hawed and we were talking in Ganyot Geha. And, and I said, well, how is this going to help me become a, a better speaker? And he said, your teacher's assistant will be vinyl off. Yes, I'll do it. And in there, I really got to hear and see people interact in the language again. And because I worked with her every day, I was able to hear her language patterns and hear her funny stories. And she was awesome. And from there, I just sort of took off. And, and, and that's how I became, came to acquire the language to the level where I have it now. Yeah. So you had support in some ways after you went to the program through teaching, through working with a first language speaker. And I know that in your, you talk about in both the pathways to learning to become an Ongohoi speaker and also your thesis about how that is necessary, the finishing of the language, not just the language program, but how you continue to use it outside of the program. Yeah, there are two, two complementary processes. One is actually acquiring the language. The yeah. second is using the language with other human beings. Yep, that's important. That's very important. You could talk to yourself, but it's much better if it's done in, in concert with human beings. And so I found that um, the relationships of how you acquire, how we acquire our language, indicates the way in which we use the language. So I started to look for places where does the language live in my community today? And this would have been at the end of the 20th century, start of the 21st century. I'm really looking around and say, where does the language have a life in Gontege? Where does the language have a life in Six Nations? And in Six Nations, the place where the language had a life at that time were in the longhouses. And the Mohawk Nation longhouse had yet to be built. And so I was going to Lodisonagehtege, Onondaga longhouse. And I'd go in there and there'd be people who spoke Ganyangeha. Oh, really? And on the benches mm -hmm. in the front were older people and they spoke Gayakono and, and the language was being used. And all the speeches were in one of our languages. And it was just this amazing place to be. And from there, they're saying, Hey, uh, you speak Ganyangea, can you say this? And I said, yeah. And they said, okay, well, come to this house at this time. And we're putting these feasts through. And so I start going to the feasts. And again, they're, all the feasts are conducted in our languages. And then a lot of the conversation that used to happen at these feasts was conducted in our languages. And so the language has this life. And, and maybe to go a bit beyond what I had written in my dissertation, that after you attend a language program, it's very beneficial and indeed necessary to surround yourself with speakers of the language where you can use it daily. Also, too, 
to go to places where the language lives. And I would add that on. Yeah. And where does it, where do you think it lives right now? In so many places. Yeah. I just, this feeling of elation almost to, to look around and think there are so many places now today where a person can go and run into someone at Sobeys and Brantford at Starbucks and Ancaster. And we're seeing people and you're saying, Hey, say, go, 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 huh? And as well now, a real game changer where the language lives is through communication. And communication has changed considerably from the time when I started learning to speak in young Geha and teach it until now. And so at that time, it was the language was considered very sacred as it is now. And talking about anything ceremonial was considered to be um, this protected, almost secretive act. And if you wanted to know something, you had to go to the house of the person who knew it and actually visit them face to face. I've seen that a lot in our community. It still lingers. That still lingers that that sense of protection around our ceremonies and ceremonial speech and things like that. So I see it still living to this day, but that there's some, it feels like in my interactions that there's some trails of colonization where that comes from of our, of what has happened to our people over the years and that we had a lot of our stuff had to go underground or it was taken by people who would come in saying that they were going to help support us and record it and write it and then take it and use for purposes that our people couldn't even access yeah so the, the language has this life in, in so many places today and and even between people now you don't even have to be in the same location you can text someone you can use the two-way feature. You can use uh, video conferencing software to communicate with someone. Memes. Uh, me memes. You can make memes. <laughs> we got, we got Ongohoi memes. Deha Ganale, here's a shout out to you yeah. and all your memes you're creating. <laughs> <laughs> keep, keep them coming. In the sense of pride yeah. that people have, that they're able to express their individual identity through our collective identity, which is Ganyot Geha. And, and that's what really brings the language to life is when we ourselves can express our innermost thoughts, feelings, desires, humor through our language of choice. And now if we're choosing Ganyot Geha, technology changes and grows. And then our people are, are adapting to that and taking the opportunities and really expanding the places where our language has a life. And that's very encouraging. Yeah. Have you seen Garhone's children's YouTube channel? No, I haven't. Yeah, there's a few people putting YouTube channels, like younger people putting YouTube channels together in Ganyageha, little vlogs of what they're doing of their day. And some I've seen during a, a lot during the pandemic because there was not a lot of human interaction. So there was almost like more stuff that came out during that time, even at our school here, because we were not able to get together in person we started making videos we made our own youtube channel and started putting all of our songs that we were making here out there so it was really cool to see that was one positive like thing that kind of came out of the pandemic was a little bit more of these accessible zoom meetings that start happening like Gordon Kaonghaje started having their zoom meetings with first language speakers which I was privileged to attend a few of those and it, it doesn't matter where you are you could still be there and listen to it and see what and, and engage so that was really cool to see so it's been really helpful, I feel like, in all, for a lot of our people. I know you've been a teacher as well, and you've written extensively on your work as a teacher. How many years have you taught children? Since 1992. And in 1992, I was a day camp summer student assistant in a computer language day camp in Tainanega. Wow. 
And then in 1993, they had the first ever Aosko Mongwehomweneha Aganhage. The first ever Mohawk Immersion Summer Day Camp in Tainanega. And so I was one of the assistants oh, yeah. at that program. How so many students was that? 25. Oh, yeah. That's fun. There were a lot. They were all <laughs> between three to six years old. Oh, yeah. And Guardi Wahawe and her sister Grace Mitchell were the teachers. It was a lot of fun. And, and so since that time, by 1996, I was the lead teacher of those of that summer immersion day camp. That was the first time I, I was the one who was kind of deciding and overseeing teacher's assistance and, and that sort of thing. So how many years is that, 1996 to today? Well, you guys, I'm a kindergarten teacher, so math is a little challenge for me sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're arts but, majors, eh? <laughs> but that would be about at least 20 years, 20 plus years. Yeah, mm -hmm. 20 years, actually. Yeah, 1993. <laughs> what year are we in, guys? 2023, yes. <laughs> wow, that's a long time. Mm -hmm. And I know you taught at Gawaneo. You started this school. And a lot of those experiences, and you've taught with a lot of different types of teachers, and you've done a lot of studies on diff different types of pedagogy, they call it, or educational philosophies. And a lot of that inspired you with your PhD to morph a different type of teaching for that's specific to Ngohuineha, teaching it with our children. So morphing together all these different types of pedagogy for something that works for our people. So could you speak a little bit to that? I have a lot of questions about it, by the way. <laughs> oh, well, I bet you, yes. Um, I could talk for days on this. I, I'm going to condense it. Yeah. And the place I want to start, I want to go back to 2002 when I was an immersion teacher in grade four, five, six. And I go in there and I'm fresh out of the Ontario Teachers College and I'm fresh out of the adult immersion program. And you're ready, right? I knew I wasn't ready <laughs> because the first day I walked into my classroom, yeah. do you yeah. know what was in there? What was in there? Nothing. Yes. I, I know this feeling. Nothing. I really do. I think a lot of language teachers, if you're out there, you know this feeling. <laughs> yes. And, and I was in my early 20s, my first year teaching, and I walk into this empty classroom. And I see one of the other teachers who are also teaching in the 50, 50 program walk by. And I said, do you have any unit or lesson plans you can share with me? And she said, who has time to make lesson plans? Right. And laugh. Yeah. And then <laughs> yes. walk away. And I was like, I thought, what am I getting myself into? And, and so right away, I noticed that the students could not have a conversation with me. They could answer yes, no. They could say, can I go to the bathroom? They had memorized most of the language that they knew. They were used to interacting in the language. So there were... They were prepared. There was a basis to start there from. Was, yes, yeah. there was a base base to, to start from. And and right away, I'm teaching them about flight, and I'm teaching them about math, concepts in math. And and I'm talking about it on Gohonwaneha, and Vina, Gohan, she's sitting there, and she's looking at me. And the kids leave one day, and we're sitting there, and I looked at her, and I said, why is this important for them to learn? They can't even talk about their families and what they did last night and how they went and played lacrosse and how they went to this lacrosse camp and in Toronto and how one of the students was the top goalie. He's now an NLL goalie. And I think back to that time and those, that class and those children taught me a lot and it really informed my teaching practice. And I thought, who are these students? And, and what is it that they're talking about? And I said, if, if we expect them to demonstrate mastery 
of curriculum content, then they need to have the language first to be able to talk about it and write about it. So that's like what you're speaking to. I think it's called, you called it or it's called the language learner delay. So yes, yes. Could you explain that to people who don't understand it? So the language learning delay, our people thought and still think it's the best course of action for children to have them attend immersion schools where the language of instruction is not the first language of most of the students. So they're learning curriculum and what everyone else learns in their first language in their second language. And it's in the last two decades, a lot more students are arriving at these immersion schools with a basis from home because the, the fruits of 50 years of getting out, getting out language revitalization are, are really paying off now. And so we're seeing children come to the schools with a much stronger base in the language. And however, at that time, these children are getting there and they're in kindergarten and you're talking to them in a language most of them don't understand. And so there's this delay where the children aren't able to express themselves verbally. Now we think about colonization and we think about residential schools and the Indian day schools where they attempted to silence us, silence our people and silence our language. And now we're sending our children to these schools and it's great. We want them to have our language. And when they get there, they're met with this language that they're not very familiar with. And so they're quiet. And what we want for them is to hear, watch, listen, do, experience. And then, and so they're taking in. It's called intake. I won't get into the linguistics of it. There's this comprehensible input, it's yeah. called, yeah. or intake. So they're taking in, taking in, taking in. And like, just to add on, that's, that's very familiar because I've studied a lot of Waldorf uh, pedagogy and the way it's also described as a breathe in, breathe out. So they're breathing in all of this material, like your breath works. So you go, you breathe in and then you breathe out. And so they're breathing in and they're getting all of this input, but they have to breathe it out as well. Yeah. So I started thinking about how do I help them get something out? Yeah. And in the mainstream type immersion school classrooms that were using the Ontario curriculum, the evaluations and assessments were very mainstream. Yeah. And, and, and in most cases, the children, it's not that they were unsuccessful, but they couldn't really be successful because they didn't speak the language at a high enough language and able to be successful yeah. on the assessment. Yeah. And I thought this is a, a major challenge to be overcome. And, and so what can we do? And so I changed the way I taught where I would try to put them in situations to experience with the language and then try to get them to get something out. In 2009, when we started the Skarong Hyaze Koa, the Everlasting Tree School, there were two groups of people who came together and came to one mind to take this one course of action. And it was combining Geha pedagogy with Waldorf pedagogy. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't without its challenges. However, there were many successes. Mm -hmm. And one of the successes is through the work of Rudolf Steiner, and anthroposophy, as well as what he calls these seven imaginative teaching methods. Mm -hmm. And these seven imaginative teaching methods are designed to help small children demonstrate learning yeah. in ways other than voice. So now they're able to get something out. Yeah. And I took some of this Waldorf training and it really inspired my teaching. It provided that what you called breathing out. Yeah. 
it lets them get something out. And this intaking and getting something out reflects the process of Ganyangkeha language learning. There's intake, and then we're going to get something out. Yeah. So there's this expectation that you're going to produce the language at some point. Thinking about my teaching, I thought, okay, I have the Ontario curriculum. Mm -hmm. Things they need to know in order to go to high school and university and have the trade or career that they would like. Then we have so we have our ways, our culture, our dynamic living culture that we also want them to know and that is prevalent in our communities. Mm -hmm. And then also we will think about how will this person have a good life and have uh, a good mind and feel, feel good about themselves. Yeah. And so I'm looking at these children, I'm thinking, how do I combine these three things into one teaching approach? Yeah. And, and, and so... How do I make the impossible possible? It was, it <laughs> it felt was, like it. It felt was, like it. was not impossible <laughs> because there were some of us at the time who had somehow managed to acquire a bunch of university degrees. Some of us who had managed to become proficient speakers of Ngwahoeneha. There were some of us who had become able to help. Yeah. in our communities with ceremonies and feasts and funerals. And, and there were others who were able to continue our harvesting practices within our traditional territories and, and to follow the protocols and ways of being that maintain uh, integrity and respect between us and the natural environment. Yeah. And then I'm seeing all these things, like, let's bring this together. And so in my own teaching practice, I feel like I was quite successful in being able to do that. And then other people were recognizing this. Yeah. And so... I remember a gentleman who was in the adult language immersion program. I saw him in the community. He started talking to me. He said, I saw your students, two of them. Mm -hmm. And I started talking to them and they talked to me. They talked yeah. back to me. Yeah. And then they were asking me questions. And then they told a story. He said, how did you do that? Yeah. And so I had to think back, well, what bring, brought it all together? And what brought it all together is in 2005, I was at York University for my master's degree. And as part of my master's thesis research, I wanted to know and understand what Mohawk pedagogy was or is. And so I asked Degakwak Goha, I'm a Johnson. And I conducted the interview in Ganyangkeha. I said to her, what is this? Ganyangkeha pedagogy. And she said, a person can move about on the earth. And in several places, there may be plants growing. And then in other places, there are trees growing. And then there are birds and there are animals. And as a person moves about through this, the earth has the power to inform their mind and and that this can lead to enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the most profound thing that I'd ever heard. Yeah. It was so simple. Yeah. Experiences on the earth or on the land can lead to enlightenment. What does that mean to you, enlightenment? It means that you are, your mind is informed of what is appropriate. So if I'm going deer hunting and I see three deer and one's a fawn and the two or two are fawns and one's a doe, maybe I let those pass. Mm. Because in my experience has taught me that if I shoot the doe, then the fawns will more than likely die. Yeah. And I want there to be deer for my children and grandchildren and an Yodaret Tsarane to be able to hunt and <laughs> yeah. harvest. And so maybe I'll let those ones walk. Yeah. And maybe I'll wait a little bit longer the buck to come by mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she can't eat horns but uh it, can't it make rattles out of them <laughs> no no it, it has to do with acknowledging relationships yeah. and using those relationships 
to guide and shape how we interact with each other. And that would include also teaching our languages. And in fact, that the types of relationships and the way we bring the language to the students and the community should be in a way that reflect the places where the language is used and also to the places and manner in which we would like our language to be used. Mm -hmm. So we're not just teaching the language, we're teaching our people to be good human beings. Yeah, yeah. And teaching the whole child. And, and that's yeah. important. And, and so what Aima had said, it, it became so simple. And I thought, how do I, how did I learn certain things? And one of the stories I talk about in my dissertation is my father used to take my brother and I hunting mm -hmm. and we would hunt small game and ducks and geese. And we'd be going to the bay and we would go to this point and we'd have binoculars and we'd sneak out to the end of this point and we would look down the coves of the bay and he would say, oh, there are black ducks under that willow tree. Mm -hmm. We're going to sneak around through the cattails. And when you see those pencil reeds, that's where we're going to jump up and shoot them. Okay. Underneath those oak trees. So then we start going and he's saying things like, um, watch out for that plant there. Mm. Don't touch that plant. And yeah. I could smell it. it. has a very particular smell. And I was, we were crawling through the bulrushes. We we're going to sneak up on these ducks and my hands started tingling. Yeah. So it was stinging Ooh. nettle. Okay. Yeah. And he said, that's stinging nettle. Don't touch that. So I'm learning all these things. And uh, I was a boy and hunting rabbits and, and all these different, he's saying the juniper bushes, that's where the rabbits hide out, look in, mm -hmm. the, look in those thorns and thistles. And he started naming all these things and, and he wasn't doing it on purpose. He wasn't standing there with a field guide showing yeah. me pictures. <laughs> this is stinging nettle, say yep. sing, stinging nettle, or hiss, or hiss. <laughs> he wasn't doing that. We were out there doing something meaningful and purposeful uh, and something that was fun. Yeah. Yeah. And, and enjoyable. And impractical because you need to know if you're hunting what those plants are. And sometimes I think we forget that when we're not on the land and in classrooms, the practicality. How are you going to use this information of medicines if you're never on the land? If you're never doing anything on the land, it doesn't really make sense because it's not relevant to your life. And so making it relevant to people's learners' lives is a big part that goes inside. And it's even more challenging, I find, to this day because of like the modernization that's happening. So there is this, it, it's challenging, but it's just something that we can work with, like the iPad movement, <laughs> I mm. want to say, or like technology, and a lot less people moving, children moving, a lot of less interaction with humans, a lot less in mainstream culture, a lot less of that. But there's a resurgence happening within our communities. And that's also a great place for schools to support that lifestyle. Yeah, so it's an opportunity there to rebring back those things that make it relevant. Right. And so I'm thinking about how I learned all of these things. And to put it into perspective, when I first met my wife, she was a student at Niagara College. Mm -hmm. And she calls me on the phone because no one had cell phones then and said, <laughs> do you want to come out and meet me for dinner? And then I have to go to this bog. I have to do a mapping assignment. And I wanted to see her. And I said, sure. So I drove out from Six Nations. And I picked her up and we went to this bog. And we're at the bog and she's drawing a map. Mm -hmm. I was like, what are you doing? Oh, I have to map this area. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? We'll have to write down what, what grows here and what grows there and what types of plants they are and the density and all. And so she started saying all these terms. I said, okay. So I'm sitting there and I brought a book and I'm reading a book. And she goes, ah. She's frustrated. <laughs> she's like, what is this? And she's looking through all these field guides. And I said, what are you doing with those? <laughs> she said, uh, I'm trying to identify what all these plants and trees are. Mm -hmm. I said, which ones? And she starts pointing at things. Mm. Arrowroot, water plantain, mm. red whip. Mm -hmm. I start naming. Yeah. 
and she's wait, wait, slow down. So she starts writing it all down and then she maps it out and she goes, what's that one? I said, red whip, yeah. red willow. So she looks in her guide. It's not in here. Is it red dogwood? Ozier? Ozier? <laughs> yeah, Ozier. Yeah, I know. And I said, I don't know. I just know what is this. <laughs> and and yeah. she said, okay. So we get done and she looks at me. And she goes, how do you know all of that? How do you know what all these plants and trees are? I said, from my dad. Yeah. We go hunting yeah. from so-and-so. We go pick medicine. Like we cut firewood. Mm-hmm. We tap trees. We need to know what these things are. Yeah. And, and so there are many different ways to acquire knowledge. Yeah. And we think about the types of relationships within which we acquire this knowledge. And we would think that the ones that make us feel good mm-hmm. or made us feel good about ourselves and our interactions with our family and our community and others, that's the way that we want to bring our language to our children. And so that's easier said than done. And the big challenge is our people, I'm not going to say insist, but the way things are today, everyone feels like the same institutions that were used to primarily take the language away are now the same institutions which can be used to bring the language back. It's a big paradox. And it is working. It's working, but it is a paradox that we work with in education all the time as Indigenous people. Yes, agreed. And so now we're seeing we're restricted and constricted by a lot of the legalese that surround elementary school education in particular and funding sources and that sort of thing. And so what we want is we want to have control Mm -hmm. over the way it is that we bring our language and culture and way of life to our children. And if they have to attend these educational institutions, how do we bring experiences to them, even in the classroom, that help inform their minds, that leads to enlightenment, that also necessitates the use of our language so that they choose the language for themselves. So the big thing I did at Scarlet Hills at Goa in my first year of teaching, I challenged myself, I'm going to put these children in positions where they have to use the language. And also that they want to. Yeah. And so I tried so many different things and, and it was fun. And you know what? The kids can sense and feel. They know when a teacher is cheaping out. Yeah. They know when the teacher is just showing up to get the paycheck. And they know when a teacher is busting their butt to bring things, something to them in a good way. Yeah, it radiates. I find from mm-hmm. teachers, you walk into a classroom and you can feel there's this, this sense of joy that comes and when joy comes and you see it and and you see it radiating from someone you just it's like children are drawn like moths to a flame with that kind of energy that you bring and so sometimes I really cap capitalize on that with the children like these beautiful little moments like you know where you almost like these cutesy little times where you can (laughs) bring in instead of just like whipping out like some medicine putting in a beautiful box and opening Mm. it gently and then they come and they're curious and they want to know and it's something about your energy of how you bring it that draw the children in and you don't have to force them sit down do this you can bring it through your energy of the the teacher and And so I was thinking, okay, well, how do I bring these experiences to these children when we can't always be outside? Yeah. Like, I'm not going to give them all shotguns, these six-year-olds, and take them out (laughs) duck hunting, which actually that would have been awesome. I would have loved to have done that. But uh, the parents are like, hey, Dejo, you can't give them them shotguns yet. Not yet. (laughs) Okay, they're only six. All right, well, they're seven. Okay, well, we'll wait a little bit longer. This is where our customs and our traditions in combination with anthroposophy come in and this Waldorf approach, everything starts with a story. And our people have many stories. And we love to tell stories. And and so, and the Waldorf education is saying, you start everything with a story. And so I sort of followed their approach that you tell the story, Mm -hmm. you let it sit overnight. And that's part of our custom too. You think on something 
under your pillow for three nights. Yeah. Yes. It can take time. And so you tell the story. And then the next day I thought, okay, they just took in the story. I'm going to tell it to them again. But this time I'm going to tell them you can use any of the props in the classroom that are Mm -hmm. over there on those shelves to Mm -hmm. act out the story. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to say anything. You just Mm -hmm. act it out. So they would act it out. And then in the afternoon we would paint it. Mm Mm-hmm. Or we would make like one of the figures out of out of uh, clay or the one time Wahadi and Dasaruni, they did woodworking and they made this little, the person that was in the story, they picked one person or, or something. And in this way, start to see what did they really take in. And so it comes out in their play. Yeah. And so now they're, they're reenacting the story at recess on their own. Yep. I've seen this. And this is like for any teachers out there, if you want to like... There was, I just had a discussion with another teacher about recess time and, and schools where they have recess and play and teachers are just the, to the side, maybe talking and the kids are doing their thing, which is important. But I found like for myself, when I teach the younger ones, they're right in their imaginations. And so I like to observe what's going on with their play, because when you can observe their play and not just be doing your own thing, you're observing, you see what's actually going into them because it's coming out through their play from their own free will. And so it's what, and when I know a story goes deep into a child is when they're playing it, when they start playing it. And there is this one story I told one time, it was about the maple, origin of the maple. There's a few stories, but I use the Aloza one, like where it came from the Aloza or, or Hyogo, whichever one you go by. And because it's just it it just seemed like it was better for the children the young ones and it happened by accident I was telling a story with puppets and I had a little bucket even though we didn't have buckets back in the day I know that but (laughs) but you know this is I I wanted them to know the word for bucket and so they had a bucket and the guy was running and uh, to go go back to the tree to collect the sap that he found from the arroz and then all of a sudden because I was doing too many things at once he's running back he's running back and then the bucket falls and the kids just start laughing they are laughing so hard so i added it into the story and uh, that he's guard integrity because i usually add songs into the story so it, with a small word i'm like guard integrity and guard integrity guard integrity oh. Mm-hmm. And he would drop it and they would just laugh. And so it wasn't until maybe a week after that, after I've been telling that story for a couple of weeks that I seen actually somebody I know very well, her daughter, she was carrying the bucket. And when we were in the woods, cause we were tapping trees at that time. And she started doing the same thing in the story, using the same words. And I, that was an aha moment for me. when you see those things and you can miss them sometimes if you're distracted mm-hmm. or and you can gauge almost what's going on with the children based on their play. Mm-hmm. So it's beautiful. Anyway, <laughs> that's awesome. That, and that's what it's about. These the kids, the students have aha moments, and yeah. then we as teachers have aha moments. And and my aha moment was bring the story to them once. They watch and they listen. The next day, the second day, they uh, and first thing in the morning, I retold the story. They acted it out. Our math had to do with all the words and concepts from that story. Yeah, our artwork whatever it was, or physical education, all these quote-unquote subjects that are separated became one. And for the whole two or three weeks, we focused on that story. Mm -hmm. And so by the third day, I'm acting it out. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I would just stay silent, and then the kids would start telling the story, and Mm -hmm. Ganyo for me, and then they would take turns. And then the later on that third day, I wrote parts a part of the story, maybe one sentence on the board, and I looked at them and I said, Oh no gahyado giga. Nohoda giga and they're looking at it and then one of them belts it out. And hmm. Yeah. And one of them looked they someone another student looks at that kid. 
and they're so surprised. And those are the moments that you want. Like, it's like they learned it themselves, but it's not, it's that they learned it themselves, but that we led them to the place where they were able to discover the meaning for themselves. And I think that's much more personal and has a lot more meaning for them. And the sense of accomplishment and achievement on that child's face is that I can read. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like creating. This is a six year old child who never took grammar or never took, never read a book, never. It printed letters, nothing, and said and exclaimed, I can read. And so that part there was called read, write. And then they copied it down without yeah. ever having written anything before in these books. So that was like the third stage mm-hmm. of this oral literacy approach, I called. Yeah. And then the fourth stage is, is speak. Yeah. Speak or write. Yeah. And in that, they're... I would ask them maybe change the story, give me an alternate ending. There's all these different fun things you can do. And, and it's called the oral literacy approach because where it starts is speaking. Yeah. And if that's our language lives because people use it and speak it, then why would we not have our children start at that place as well? Yeah. And, and so then after that, I, I decided, I looked at some of my linguistics courses I had taken in university at the graduate level and in there, there's something called task-based language teaching. And in, in task-based language teaching, we're putting students in positions and giving them experiences that necessitates the use of the target language. Mm-hmm. And so that's where they had to apply the language in some kind of different context. Yeah. So just like with your Wata maple, origin of the maple syrup story, they were actually out there tapping trees and boiling Yep. sap to make syrup. Maybe they made maple candies. There's all these ways to to apply the language that they learned and then transfer it. So this is the sixth stage of this oral literacy approach. Have them transfer what they know and be able to speak and do and read and write to something, another context, mm. similar, mm-hmm. but different. Yep. And then the seventh part of this is to extend and yeah. extend that knowledge out into the community. And for, let's say, the maple example, that could be something as simple as uh, going to the sugar bush with another class. It could be going to Longhouse for a Hadirundatat day where giving thanks to the maple and drying up the trees, anything like that. Oh, yeah. And so they're extending their learning into the community or maybe one of their assignments was, I want you to go home and tell your parents this story. Mm-hmm. Take your book. And I want you to tell us how that went tomorrow. Yeah. And the kids couldn't wait to come back and say, oh yeah, what can you do? Yeah, and so... We're, the goal is to do many things at, with, at once. And, and we understand that everything we, that we do in the classroom affects what happens in the homes, in the families, in the clans, in the community, mm-hmm. and then across the nation. So we're doing something much more than just bringing our language to our people, but we're, in fact, ensuring the survival of us as a people at the same time, helping each individual person feel good about themselves as an Ongwehome person on earth. Mm, so these two things together to me are are our endeavor i don't know how much time we have left we're pretty getting close to the end but i do i have a lot of questions (laughs) but but i one question i wanted to ask you too was to go into a little bit of some of the barriers that we're facing right now at this time to our language revitalization movement with the children. One that I could think of in my own personal experience as a teacher is the need for families to be involved. I feel like there's a there's a concept, a Western concept of school that we've adopted almost culturally as a people, but we're forced into 
but now at this point we've adopted or taken that philosophy on that we drop a child off at school. They learn for so many years and maybe we meet their teacher once or twice. And so there's a separation between home and the school. And I find that to be a big barrier. It's changing for sure. I see a lot because we do intake in the early years. I'm getting all the new families and we interview them. We go to their home. We get form relationships with them. We're trying to change that. But it is something that I'm seeing is that there's more parents that are raising their children with the language or with some language, which is great. But could you speak to that about the need? Because you've raised your children and as first language speakers and talk about that connection between home and school from your personal experience? Great question. And this is absolutely important. So my eldest child is now 19. Yeah. And when my wife was pregnant with him, I was a teacher in the grade four, five, six, <laughs> 50, 50 program. And I took leave time for three years to stay at home with him so that he would be a speaker of Ganyangeha. Mm -hmm. Many challenges to that. The biggest challenge is that I didn't have an income. Yeah. Yep. The second challenge is that my investment in time and language and culture and customs and my nation and our nationhood was not supported monetarily. Yeah. I can't say that entirely. Some of my friends <clears throat> who I grew up with in other Kanyakehago communities and other acquaintances I met through Longhouse and through Lacrosse uh, supported me in other ways. So I was able to stay home with my son and, and say, well, it takes a village to raise a child. I'd say it takes a nation to raise a child who knows Genie Nguari Hodos and Genie De Wawanoro. And And so it's isolating. I was at home a lot and we would go visit older people, the few that were here who could speak our language. And so here's my three-year-old talking to an 83-year-old and, and I thought, this is awesome. And they were just so happy and so proud. And, and I was too. And we let him have contact with other family members who spoke only English, but were supportive of what we were doing. And, and at that time, 20 years ago, you go to the arena, there were very few people speaking Wuhumaneha. You just didn't hear it. In the community, you just didn't hear it. Um, the long houses and the feasts were the only places that you could really hear. And so just him and I being out in the community speaking in the dressing room at hockey, mm -hmm. at lacrosse, at the library, I at the restaurant. I could just use that anywhere. No, that's what Vinyl Off taught me is that you be proud that you can speak your language and you speak it everywhere you can and around whoever. I'll just say this for maybe anyone who can relate to this out there. I think that was something I had to build over a long period mm. of time. It was a barrier that I had to, not that I felt shame, but there was this inkling feeling, and I don't know if it came from the inside or the outside of me, but it was like the other people couldn't understand me. So I felt like I was disrespecting them in some sort of way, in a weird, twisted way. And I, it was a barrier I had mm. to speaking to my child in front of English-speaking people. We would speak all the time at home, but it was those situations when we were around family that couldn't understand what I was saying. It was a challenge I found for myself. Yeah. Another barrier was the way that our men were treating our women Yeah. and how women were perceived at the time. And in, in fact, my wife chose to nurse all of our children. And through that experience, she spent the most time with our children mm -hmm. in the first two years. And I thought it's so important that our women become speakers. Yeah. 
And then I looked around at all of our communities and in our language programs and all the ones who had been, quote unquote, the most successful in becoming speakers were all men. And what's your opinion on this? I have an opinion on it, but what's your... So my wife why? went to Ongoanaganjokwa and, but as being a mother, yeah. it was like her, it was almost an expectation that she was still the primary caregiver, even yeah. though I was at home with the children. Yeah. And someone said, well, why can't you just learn together? I said, well, someone has to make money yeah. so that we can survive. Yeah. And, and this is another barrier, the isolation and the atomization of families and that if my brother and I are out with my dad and we're kids and we're out duck hunting, we, we got to take the day off school. Yeah. And that kind of learning happens outside of the school together with your family. How do we make it acceptable for children to spend more time with their, their families family. doing things that are important to them and in our languages? And so this culminates over time and I'm looking all the teachers, a lot of men, some women, uh, the second language learners who are becoming speakers, very proficient men. And I'm thinking, why is it this way? And instead of focusing on that, I focused on how do I empower our women to take their place as the heads of our families and the main persons who are transmitting our languages to our children. How do we reestablish that? Because the women have this special power. They're related to Jinhekmo, our food plants, the, our mother, the earth female, grandmother, the moon, female, they're all related. And how do we empower our women? And, and traditionally in our communities, the women were the ones who governed the inner workings of the community. This included education. And yeah. sometimes I would question myself, I'm a man. Why am I here? And why am I doing this? Like yeah. this, there should be a woman here with this power, this female women power to to be the one who is doing this. And the big question became for me, well, how do we empower? And so yeah. I supported my wife going through the language program and there were all these expectations put on her. You need to have a job. Yeah. You need to be out working. Yeah. Your children need to be in a school. Yeah. You're setting them up for failure in the future. There yeah. are so many barriers. I, and I'm sure people who are listening who have a similar, have very similar experiences. Those of you who have tried to raise your children as speakers of and, and this culminated in a, I wrote a proposal, yeah. not a strongly worded letter. Mm -hmm. I wrote a proposal for a new quote unquote language program that would invest in individuals. And in fact, invest in individuals with young children. Yeah. Whereas opposed to giving someone money to go to university, this person who maybe they could speak a little, quite a bit of Ganyangeha or Gayakono or Onondaga that we're going to fund them for three years to stay at home with their children so that, when that, was that that family becomes a speaker of that language. I gave it to, I was instructed to give it to the director of HDI who was going to forward it on to the secretary of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy Council here at Six Nations. That would have been in 2005 or 2000, 2006. Oh yeah. So did that go through? No. It went nowhere. And so in the research, this is called going vertical, yeah. where you recognize these people are excelling in this. We need to invest in them. However, our people at the time were going horizontal. Yeah. We want to take anyone who wants to learn and is willing at whatever level, and we don't care, we'll fund everyone because for so long, no one was allowed to speak our language. No one. Um, 
was using the language. And so now we want everyone to use it. And, and this it's not a new idea. The Hawaiians, when I went there, the very first thing they told me, they said, if you don't have speakers, you don't have anything. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that's pretty harsh. And, and they told me they did not start an immersion elementary school until they had adults yeah. who could speak their language well enough to raise their children as speakers of Hawaiian in the home. And so those children who went to those Hawaiian immersion schools could already speak Hawaiian. Yeah. And that's something that that's a big difference. It seems is, is quite a huge disparity between how things are, are organized in our region as opposed to, to in Hawaii. Can I speak to something for that? Because yeah. I feel like this comes to funding in a way, because the way the biggest thing is that I see is that the funding that we have, for example, here at the school comes directly from Indian Affairs and it's tuition based. So however many students we have here are the number times some sort of formula, however much money we get for everything. And I know there's a difference between the private schools, same as Gaunio, and the, the mainstream schools on reserve. But the pro the main problem, is, it seems like, is that there's a gap, it seems, between because the other main funding that comes in Ontario is to Ministry of Early Years, which is for child care, significantly less money for that. If we were to, the we've been talking about this, how do we create that? We need the children early, we need the families involved. How do we get funding for that? Because the only funding we're getting is from the children of that are coming into school like elementary funding from three and a half turning four onwards but we need family funding and how do we go about that maybe we could open a child care that included the families but then the parents wouldn't be getting paid and we would get significantly less money for the teachers the teachers in early years in ontario i don't know where you're listening but it is pennies you do not get paid very much being and i know our sound <laughs> our sound technician eric but he was he is in the he worked in early years i've worked in early years in daycare settings it's pennies and that's the formative time of the child that's when they're learning their speech this is when they're forming their mouths based on like the language they hear around them if we were to have some sort of funding available for that and for adult immersion. That's another gap for our adult, it, but it seems like there's funding gaps. And now Ontario wants to be doing all this stuff or Canada for revitalizing our languages, all this words around reconciliation, and we want to help now, but yet a lot of this money isn't going to the places we need them where there's gaps, you know? So I, I don't know how you feel about that, but I, I totally see the same thing. If I can use a, a metaphor, it, um, ojire, fire. And if we think about what a fire represented back to when our people lived in longhouses, a family. And who and what is a family? A family is a group of people who share a fire. Yeah. And these people are of all different ages. Mm -hmm. And their survival, in fact, depends on having strong gahuajire. Yeah. And how do we get back to that from where we are? We have our infants over here and we have our elementary our toddlers over there and we have our school age children over here and my child university has gone way over there and my wife is working over here and now I'm working over there. How does our language and culture live when we don't see each other? Yeah. How does it have a life? And we're finding ways. Yeah. And in one effort I want to mention, Yagwahwajirdadje has mm -hmm. this word in it, Gahwajirde, Yagwahwajirdadje. Yeah. And that program to me is an excellent, excellent. model. Yes. And, and what they're doing there in Gahnawage is truly amazing. And 
that is a move towards getting back to this idea we are like it's one yeah. family like we mm -hmm. learn we learn and live together and and that it's possible that shows the rest of us that hey that's possible at the same time i understand the purpose of sending adults mm -hmm. to an adult immersion school to focus just on learning the language right now the language has been taken out of our families mm -hmm. and we're transitioning back to that and part of the transition right now includes uh, daycares, yeah. elementary schools, high schools, adult immersion schools, and university programs, as well as community-based programs. And so it's necessary for now. But let us please think about everyone, everyone kind of envision the end goal. What does the end look like? Is the end that, hey, there are two immersion schools at Six Nations? Yeah. That's not the end. No. That's a means to this end of like, like our language lives everywhere and it's practical and it's useful and and we use it because we love it, love it. and yep. we use it because uh, it's it's practical for us to use it and it helps us to survive at the most basic fundamental human level and as well it gives us the means to express ourselves to others in ways that make us feel good about who we are yeah, I know we were a little bit over time, so there's just one last question in English, and then I want to ask you one question in Gurungeha. Is that okay? Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the last question in English, I know you're going on to York University as a professor there. You just started, right? Yes. Yes. And I was just wondering what your hopes are coming into this new position and the role of higher education and the language revitalization movement. Uh, what I can say about the role of post-secondary education in support of our language revitalization movement, the help to this point has been absolutely critical. Not the sense that these external post-secondary institutions are revitalizing the language for us, but it's providing spaces with support and funding for our own people to attend these institutions, to be students, to work at them, and to use those platforms from which to conduct research to network globally, uh, to be inspired and informed by what other world and minority languages are doing to speak and use and read and write their languages. And they provide spaces right now for our people to come to understand our current reality in order to be able to transform it. Mm -hmm. And so this critical role of these post-secondary institutions, again, it, it's, it's now, but it will not be always. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that in the future that our families will be the ones who are doing this. These post-secondary institutions are playing this vital and critical role. At the same time, it's we need to understand, I believe, that there are restrictions mm -hmm. and they can only help us so far insofar as we are there to help ourselves. So I'm at York University. I teach two days a week. They want to give me money to conduct research. Guess where my research is happening? Here. And my idea of, of myself being there is it sort of frees me up mm -hmm. to have the time to help more yeah. in our communities within our nation and that we're already strapped for funding internally. Someone else is paying me, but I can still do the same work. Yeah. Yeah. And and we have so many others uh and so working in so many other capacities and, and this is amazing. Yeah. And to think 
what kind of supports do these people who are working in the schools need? Yeah. What do you as a teacher need in order to first become more fluent in Ganyak Geha? And then what kind of supports do you need in order to be able to quote unquote, do your job better and yeah. achieve the goals of, of the place where you were working? Yeah. That's my next research project. Awesome. So I'll be around. Yeah, <laughs> mm -hmm. this is exciting. So this is the end of our podcast for English. And any of you out there who are learning the language right now, I wanted to, just because I'm a language learner, to have a little bit of time in Ganyageha. So for those of you who do not speak Ganyageha, I invite you to sit back and to relax and listen to the beautiful <laughs> sound of our language, Ganyageha. And for those, or you can, you can turn it off now if you want. That's cool. But I invite you to listen to our language. And for those of you who are language learners right now, I know Ogawana Gunjokwa just started their next cohort this year. And many of the other adult Mohawk immersion programs around Mohawk country have just started in Cuga programs as well, Seneca programs as well. And so this is the time where many of our adult learners are going back into the classroom. So here's a little treat for you guys. So ne ganyegeha stoha ne gadewiasta sego gadewiasta waga honi zeradenyo. Dano um okne igere ne jia ezo de agunakta de nekji igere aguri wanondo se neji oya or siso wande etoye wageno neji ungo ungo wana gunjokwane ne ona like sa tundaswane sunda hundaswane ahundewiaste wanga joserade. Dano ezo ne uh, so, ジニハディ、ワナディリホヨンスノハジ。ねなね、ジニハディロノゲディソン。ねどすけ、よりほわの。ジニゼワジェハ。よりほわの。ジ、セワウィオンデタンハジ。アゼワロンゲ、ゴ
Nezanora, Scotneze Wadri Hoyansta. Yasayat Gato, Safajira Dutje. Yasayat Gato, Ganagara Sarage, Genue, Decedron. Tatnoa Garumarage Oni Wada, Yasayat Gatunyo. Doni Hardy, one of the Count Hatje. Danaoni Netodians, Genie Zari Hoda. Danaoni Yasayano Dunyo Way. Aguegon Genie Hardy, Onane. Oh, are you on Jage? Sakayam. Yuki Sutrat Sung Goha. Nenelo Hunkakwe. Nelo Nuha, one hundred years to Nayawa and Nise Oni Wada. As a ward on gay, than I say what Dadis again, Gohuaneha, Umagonis Redenius. Then only a Honda Yasayan of Dunyoe. Jinni Hardy on the Hardy Guns of Don Jays again. Nene, a Hardy Nagarat day, the Hodi da Ohage, Gonto, on Jage. Doske, Nise Oni, I say at the Ganhuage. Jinni Hardy Gonto, Nantahone, Ohonda, Yuana Hadje, Yunga Havi day. That Noah a Gwegon Wada, and is a Devayondo, that Noah. And that Nigola Nilats that quay, no goni, and so jat that near the day. Then only that no scona, they won't have done again. Eight to Garinayo Dahage, and they sat Nigumra. Now, what Gono Horato, they had a carato, that now Eric was Guayena was there, ne a Guecone, eh, was the one Ayena, that no genitone, so what the Honsata Gene Gigo, Wanga, ah, Unisura Denio, ne Unguara Jarda, only ne as what Gunda Quene, Deswana Quen, Nunguana, Nokni, and Guardi Hodos, that no ne a touchine, Ize as one at the Nusagi. Dogat <laughs> 